Hey, good morning, FBCO. I'm Pastor Doug, and I'll be preaching next Sunday, but this morning, John Marshall is preaching for us. He preached earlier in the month, and John's one of my favorites, just a great friend and a great encourager and a great blessing to us, and he's preaching for us this morning. I'll be preaching next week. Guess I'd love to meet you, and I can't wait to get to see you, and I look forward to what God's going to do. I'll be uh, energized and recharged and ready to go, and God bless you. Would you join me this morning in welcoming to FBCO again, Dr. John Marshall. Thank you. It's good to be back. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Matthew 26, 36. We are so glad to be back. You were so kind to us three weeks ago. I don't even know what to say. You blessed us and ministered to us, and we have been looking forward to coming back. It's good to have Pastor Doug with us today. We've been friends with Doug and Vicki so long that we just try not to say how long we've been friends because people might figure out how old we are. So it's been a long time, and to get to preach in his pulpit is one of the great honors of my life. I was pastor of a church about the size of this for 22 years, and um, when you're fellow pastors, you don't get to spend a lot of time together. Now, I've been retired five years, and to get to come here and preach where Pastor Doug is a pastor is one of the greatest honors of my life. I'm honored to be here. This is my sweet bride of 52 years, Ruthie, right here. Yes. She's going to read my scripture and pray for me. She's done that for many years now. So Matthew 26, 36, Ruthie. Thank you. I love your beautiful singing to the Lord. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrows to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, Jesus fell face down, face down, and prayed. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, precious Father. I don't know where, you know, would we have stayed awake? Would we, would we have understood? As a mother, I can't understand. I would give my life for some, but I, 
I don't know my child. And beloved Savior, thank you for the cross. Father and Son, we will never forget. Never, never forget. Thank you for the cross. Surely all of heaven was shuddering at the thought of what was ahead for beloved. Thank you for loving us with such a great love. May we bring honor and glory to you. May those around us see your smile, feel your love, taste your mercy, experience your forgiveness. Thank you for this morning with your people in this place. We love you. We love you to heaven and back, precious one. In your holy name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dolly. Love you, baby. Welcome to the midnight of Jesus' earthly existence. At this torturous moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said he was about to die of a broken heart. Did you get that, folks? Now, he's going to go to a cross the next day, but on the night before, he's afraid he's going to die right now. His heart is so shattered, he feels he's going to die. He's alone, lying face down. Not like the artists portray it, and I do love Christian art. Artists make statements through their work. He wasn't praying like this. He wasn't praying like this. He was praying like this. Dad, if it's any other way, could we do that? Dad, surely there's another way, surely, surely. Dad, hey, Dad, Dad! In agony unfathomable to us, he's crying out to his father. He's calling it this cup. He's saying, Lord, is there any way this cup can pass from me? The anxious like to use the metaphor of the cup when they're going through suffering or anguish because in the ancient world, they didn't have the filtering systems we have. And so when they drank something, the grounds would go to the bottom of the cup, like your coffee grounds or your tea grounds. They'd go down to the bottom of the cup and course, when you drink those, that's pretty bad. That's about as bad as it gets. And so the ancients picked up on that. And when they're talking about something that is just agonizing, something that is terrible, they're saying, is there any way this cup, do I have to go through this cup? And Jesus is down on the ground, face down, begging his dad, if there's any way he could keep from having to drink this cup. What was the cup? What kind of cup could ever be bad enough for the Son of God to be on his face begging his dad to not have to drink it? It was the cup of having to drink all of God's wrath against sin. Jesus literally drank your cup of damnation dry. Don't you ever forget that Jesus took your hell into his body on the cross. Paul believed it. 
He said, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter knew it. He wrote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He was literally drinking your cup of damnation dry. And because of that, you have the opportunity to go to heaven. I've been saying for many years, I've said this for decades, if I had only one more sermon to preach, this is what it would be. The sermon would be this. People do not go to heaven because they're good. They do not go to hell because they're bad. Did, did you ask me to say that again? Okay, I will. People do not go to heaven because they're good. People do not go to hell because they're bad. One of the great tragedies of my life, 56 years in the ministry, one of the great tragedies that Mother Teresa, and we didn't agree with Mother Teresa on everything. We, we know she had error in some of her things, but Mother Teresa died believing she was not going to go to heaven. How is that even possible? Because she was raised in a system and said you had to be good enough to go to heaven, and she never believed she was good enough. Who wants to serve a God like that? Who wants to work for a boss that you never know if you please them or not? Who, who would ever want to serve a God whose children would serve him for a lifetime and they would never know for sure they're going to be with him forever? What kind of God is that? Well, it's not the God who's on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane because he's getting ready to drink hell's cup for us. He is drinking our cup of damnation dry. And so in the beginning, before the beginning, we, we have a word that the church has used for 1,700 years. 1,700, count them, folks. It's a Latin word to describe God before anything was created. It's called perichoresis. Pera, like in the perimeter, around, and choresis, like choreography. It means the dance around. 1,700 years. We have thought of God as the dance around. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, like this intermingling, loving one another, so tightly knit that it's as if they're one. But one in three. And somewhere in the perichoresis, there never was a time when this was not what they were going to do. We can't even hardly describe these actions. Somewhere in the perichoresis, because they loved each other so much they wanted to share their love. That's, that's the trait of love. Love concealed will kill you. It'll break your heart. And because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved each other so much they wanted to share it. They wanted to show it off, as it were. And so they created creatures. They created creatures not only that could love them, but they created creatures that they knew would rebel against them. And how desperately did they want to show their love? They would create creatures who would rebel against them. And then they would pay the price for their sin. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus has come out of the perichoresis. He's the second person of the Trinity. 
He has come now to live among us. He has come to take our hell into himself. And he knows that the next day, He's going to become the very thing that hurts his beloved ones the most. He is going to become the incarnation of sin itself. And so now we've come to this from the perichoresis to on our face in a garden, screaming to daddy, can we do something about this? What's the difference? Same person. What happened? We do ourselves a terrible disservice if we believe that Jesus was able to live a perfect life because he was God. Now, yes, Jesus is totally God, totally human, totally God, 100% both. But often we slip into thinking, well, no wonder he was perfect. He was God. You missed the whole point. If Jesus lived a godly life because he was God, if he was perfect because he was God, then he mocks us. He mocks our efforts to try to live a godly and holy life. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, when he became Jesus of Bethlehem, that he emptied himself. A great passage. He emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of the ability to live a godly life in his own strength. Is he still God? Sure he is. He's doing lots of things only God can do. But there's just one area of life where he's going to live his life the same way that you and I have to live it if we're going to succeed. He was perfect not because he was God, but because he was a human who depended totally on his Father and on the Holy Spirit. And so now here he is. He was in the group that said, we're going to do it that way. But now the human him is on his face on the ground saying, is there there any other way we could do this? He's not trying to compromise who he is. He's not trying to compromise the Father. He's just leaning as he always did. He is turning unto the Lord, to his Father, and saying, you're going to have to help me here. I'm in serious trouble. This really feels bad. This really hurts. So welcome to the midnight of Jesus' human existence. Jesus had a choice to make. God the Father sent God the Son to die, but God the Father did not force God the Son to die. And so now here he is, deciding. First of all, he notices his agony. I mean, it's, he's torn up. His agony teaches us that our goal in prayer is not to be emotionless and unfeeling. It is okay to come to God in such a terrible tremor. The Bible says that he sweat as it were great drops of blood in this prayer session. That's how hard he's praying. The Bible also says that an angel came and strengthened him. Can you imagine? Jesus is on the ground. He's writhing around. He's he's begging. He's pleading. Can we do this some other way? And an angel has to come and grab him and hold him and give him strength. And so we learn from him it's okay to be intense. It's okay to speak harshly to God. It's okay to get angry with God. 
It's all right to plead, to agonize, to struggle as long as you can end up saying what Jesus said. Do you see it there in verse 39? The end of verse 39, what did he say? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Easy to say, hard to mean. In this one sentence, Jesus unveiled the secret ingredient in all effective praying. If you and I were told we could only pray one prayer the rest of our life, if God said, pick a good one, because you've only got one prayer, that's all I'm going to listen to from you the rest of your life, there is no other prayer that you could choose. This is all prayer in one prayer. This is why we're to pray like this every time we pray. This is all prayer consumed in one sentence. The most important part of being a Christian is submission. Yielding to Him. Not getting what we want, not our way, but yielding ourselves to Him. Being totally obedient to the will of God. He is the Holy One. He's the one who sees all. He's the one who understands. He's the one who's above and beyond. And our response to Him is since you're the Holy One, we're going to be holy, holy. Holy inwardly, holy outwardly. Holiness matters most. Say it, please. Holiness matters most. Say it one more time. Holiness matters most. The most important thing is yielding life here unto Him, inwardly and outwardly. And one of the best tests of how you're doing in the spiritual life, one of the best ways you can know how you are really doing in your walk before the Lord is by asking yourself, can I really pray this prayer? We used to have a joke when I was younger. The way you knew that you were growing in the Lord, you quit smoking, drinking, dancing, cussing, chewing tobacco, and running around with women who do. Kind of the joke of the time. And yet there was, a, there was something behind that that said, you know what you do and who you are by how you behave. And behavior is important. But behavior has to come out of something underneath. That, that's, I think, that may be the main reason we lose so many teenagers when they become adults. Somehow we were not careful to teach them it's more than behavior. So if they quit smoking, drinking, dancing, so forth, so forth, they really think they've kind of arrived. It's not about the inward life. It's not about the personal submission and yielding to Him. And therefore we lose them because if it's about behavior and they're doing pretty good, off they go. The ultimate test is in here. Can you truly say to the Lord, do with me what you want? Can you truly pray, Lord, do with me whatever you want to do? This is what the best among us have always done. When Paul the Apostle could not be talked out of going to Jerusalem, he's going to, his friends are all saying, you're going to die in Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. They're going to get rid of you. When they finally realized that Paul was going to go no matter what they said, they finally said, the will of the Lord be done. They yielded to it. James warned us. Don't be making promises and statements of what you're going to do. Instead, you always say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, that's a way of worshiping the Lord. You lay it all at His feet, and you say, am I going to do this? Yes. And in your heart, you're saying, if the Lord wills. It's all dependent on what He wants done. In my dad's family, it was customary to say we would do such and such. Lord willing, I'm afraid that it became a habit much of the time. Not a conviction, but still the thought behind it was worthy. Effective praying, your greatest praying, now listen to me, your greatest praying is when you submit in prayer 
when you align your will to God's will. Your best prayers change you, not God. We miss the whole point. If we're coming into prayer, trying to get God to change, trying to force God into our little box, we miss the whole point. If we think that the purpose of prayer is more to change Him than to change us. And many of these pews right here that are empty this morning are empty because a person thought that. When, when people decide that the purpose of prayer is to change God, more than to change me. When a person takes their fist, basically, and shakes it in the face of God and tries to force Him to do what the person wants done, they are in essence becoming their own God and even worse, they're trying to be the God of God. <gasps> and it's that domineering spirit, that lack of being submissive, that lack of being with your nose on the ground, saying, Dad, is there any other way? I sure would like for something else to happen. But if not, your will be done, not my will. And the fact that many people are not taught to live like that, that's why a lot of these pews are empty today. That's one of the reasons why people walk away from Christianity is because they did not get what they wanted in their prayer. And the way that we show that we love God, the way that we show that we have real power in prayer is to agree with Him, however painful His decision is to us. We win if we can come into His presence and lose everything else and yet still have Him. If we can say to Him, having your smile means more to me than anything else in the world. In my 56 years of ministry, the Lord has blessed Ruthie and me. It's been a wonderful thing. One of the things I've done is I've, I've told my people many, many times through the years, they got used to it, that a successful Christian learns how to take the circle test. The circle test is when you get in a room by yourself and in your mind's eye you start talking to the Lord and you draw a circle around your feet. And you push everything in your world out of the circle. You push everything you possess. You push out your job. You push out your siblings. You push out your parents. You push out your spouse. And then you just stand there. And you're talking to the Lord and you're praying and you're saying, Lord, is this enough? Just you and me, is this enough? Someday, trust me, you'll have to push some things outside the circle. And if you've not done the circle test, at least spiritually, if not literally, if you've not done it figuratively, you'll always be tempted when something goes outside the circle to say, Lord, you are not enough. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's pushing everything else out of his life and he's having to decide, is my Father's will enough? Is what we decided on in the perichoresis enough? 
Now, let me explain to you why I think this is so important. Now, I'm going to say something that's very controversial. And uh, if you take it the wrong way, it, it, it create problems. But I'll just lay it out there, and I'll, I'll let you hopefully put it in context and, and then understand what I'm trying to say. I believe that suffering is harder for Christians than non-Christians. You heard me. That's what I said. <laughs> you were sitting there saying, what, did he just say what he did? I think he said, yes. I think that troubles and the problems of life are more difficult for believers than non-believers. Non-believers are fatalists. They just believe life happens. It just goes on, you know. Something happens, something terrible. They just bite their bottom lip, and they just go on and carry on with life. They're just fatalists. That's what they do. They're fatalistic. They don't have any other choice. Whereas the Christian goes through the same type of suffering. We all suffer in the fall of Adam and Eve. We all live in a real world here. We go through the same things that lost people go through. They don't believe, but they just grit their teeth and say, that's just the way it is. But for the believer, there's this little catch because we know that our God could fix this if he wanted to. So we're going through the same problems that the lost person is going through. They're just gritting their teeth and they're just barreling through it. But for the Christian, they come to the same problem, the exact same difficulty, and suddenly there's a civil war. It's not like the lost person pushing all in the same direction, the fatalism just pushing life along. All of a sudden, the Christian says, God could do something about this if he wanted to. So the Christian faces suffering, often with a civil war tearing him or her up on the inside. And so life's questions can get pretty tough for a believer. Do you envy someone more gifted than you are? Is there someone who makes you jealous? Do you ever wonder why God made you the way you are? Have you ever wished you were somebody else? Did you ever wonder why you didn't get that guy to be your boyfriend? Or that girl to be your girlfriend? Have you or a loved one been sick for a long time? It's different between being sick and being sick for a long time. Do you have a harsh attitude towards somebody? You got a teacher? You got a friend? You got someone you know and you can just feel the harshness in you? Has a loved one died unexpectedly lately? Did you not get that promotion at work you wanted or, or did you not get that grade in school that you'd hoped you'd get and life just went sour for you? Are things bad at work or things bad at school? Do you have family members that have strayed from God? That'll break your heart. Yeah, that'll put you in the ground. When you give your whole life and everything that you are and have to raising your children for Jesus, and something goes wrong. And if you love God, you can't help but feel it's your fault, even though it's not. And sometimes you just, sometimes you just want to cry out to God. Why did you let my kids turn out that way? Why did you let that happen? Why did you let that person that influenced them the wrong way, even come into their life? Has a relationship gone bad? 
Do we sometimes have to admit that we're angry with heaven? You ever want to scream to God and say, why don't you fix this? I'm convinced that Jesus with his nose on the ground is your best example and your best hope to rise above all these things. Many of them are going to happen to you. These things are going to happen to you. You are going to push things out of the circle of your life. And it's Jesus with his nose on the ground that will allow you not to have a civil war in your heart in addition to whatever you're going through. Now this text matters to Ruthie and me. In our 52 years of marriage, we feel that we've had an inordinate amount of suffering. We do not know why God has brought some of the things into our lives. Deaths, tragedies. We've lived circumspect lives. I've been a pastor all these years, tried to serve him, tried to please him. I have a 24-year-old grandson who's six foot five inches tall. If he walked in the door, you'd think that's one of the most handsome persons you've ever seen in your life, and he doesn't even know who Ruthie and I are. He can't talk. We take care of him two days a week. And sometimes we just wonder why. Now, we never get angry with God. Ruthie and I have never gotten angry with God. But sometimes we want to, and I think, I think a, a part of the suffering, a part of the problem, what makes the suffering worse is that we've had things happen we don't even know the why with regard to what we're supposed to do with it. You know, you know, at least sometimes you'll go through something and there's somebody else that you can bless and help that's going through the same thing and you feel like, oh, yeah, that's why I went through that. We've never had that with our grandson, 24 years. Never one time. If it were not for us serving a master whose nose was on the ground and saying, Dad, is there any other way you could do this? We'd have given up a long time ago. The Civil War would have destroyed us. And oftentimes, I'm convinced that in most situations, God does want to do a miracle. I truly believe he does. But I've come to the conviction that the miracles are usually not outside us, but inside us, that we become the miracle. 52 years ago, Ruthie and I married. Had we known what was going to happen in life? Had we been able to just see down the road, we would have fallen to the ground in a fetal position, sucking our thumb and never left the house. We, 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 would, have, we would have been totally destroyed, devastated. We, we wouldn't even be able to function. But somehow, as we've gone through life, we've been all right. The miracle has been in us, not outside us. We become the testimony. We become Jesus with his nose on the ground, sweating as it were great drops of blood with an angel strengthening him, trying to calm him down as he's writhing on the ground. We become the story. We are the miracle. God does not always take the cup of suffering away from us. Now listen to me. Hear me. No one ever prayed with a pure heart or with greater intensity than Jesus did. You've never prayed to the point 
of sweating as it were great drops of blood. You've never prayed to the point that an angel came and strengthened you. You've never lived a perfect life. Here you have it. The one perfect life in existence. One. Praying harder than anybody's ever prayed in the history of the world and ever will pray of the history of the world. Here he is praying. He's the incarnate Son of God. He's the second person of the perichoresis. He was there when they made the decision. He's God, a very God, not a demigod, not a semigod, not a half God. He's God, a very God. And yet the Father said, No, Son, no. Now listen to it, let it echo in your mind. No, Son, no. One of the most dangerous mistakes you'll ever make as a Christian is if you begin to believe that your prayers are answered only if God says yes. One of my biggest pet peeves is you say God answered our prayer when something happened when he granted a request. Stop that. Stop it. Stop it. God has answered every prayer you have ever prayed. If you're one of his own, if you have repented, if you're coming into his presence, Holy and clean, you have never offered a prayer that God did not answer. Never. Beware thinking that prayer is answered only if God says yes, no, and wait are just as legitimate answers to prayer as yes. With yes, he encourages us. The psalmist said he wanted a token for good. He needed some little evidence. There's just something. Okay, let me know that we're doing okay here. Like that, that's what yes is. It encourages us. Wait, which is the most common answer to our prayers. Wait is God's way of keeping us coming to Him. We don't know the answer. We don't know what's going to happen. Our grandson, we don't know if he'll be healed someday or if not. The answer is wait. And it keeps us coming. When God said, well, you've prayed about something for a long time, and nothing has happened, yes or no. That, that, that's, the, that's the way that the Lord says, would you just come and talk to me about this? Could, could we get kind of close to each other, spend a lot of time together? And then no is God's way of protecting us. Many of us in this room are going to get to Judgment Day and find that the greatest gift God ever gave us was when he said no to many of our requests. Do you understand that? No is a great gift. God protects us with no. Who is it that always says yes to our wrong desires? Satan. Satan. Yes, he encourages us. Wait, he says, come. No, he says, I will protect you. An ancient poet wrote a poem about Jupiter. And he presented Jupiter as the main god of the gods. And he said, humans would pray to Jupiter, and Jupiter thought that was just silly. And that just for fun, Jupiter would take the prayers, read them, think about them, and then he would throw them off into the abyss of space. Just not even caring. He couldn't have cared less, and he just throws it away. If you think that the only time God answers your prayer is when he says yes, you're putting God in exactly the same place as Jupiter.
every prayer you've ever prayed, as you've repented unto the Lord, coming to him with holiness, and every prayer you've ever prayed, the Lord Jesus has held it close to his heart. And he has said either yes, maybe, or no. Never in your life have you ever prayed and your prayer was cast away. Don't you ever think that thought. The Lord knows exactly how you're going to feel. He knows exactly what it means. And he weighs it heavily. And to be a Christian means, listen to me, to be a Christian means if I knew what God knows, I in my heart of hearts believe I would be doing what God is doing. That's what it means to be a Christian. On your face, not my will but thine be done. God, you know what's right. You love me more than I love myself. Oh God. Oh God, oh God. Now, you have never prayed a prayer that God did not answer. And let me leave you with a very helpful truth. Know this. However little we feel the power we have in prayer, we must still pray. It doesn't matter how powerful you think you are, how many yeses you get, that doesn't matter. Your job is to pray without ceasing, to constantly always be praying. As I told you, I was pastor of a church about this size for 22 years, and in my last five years, I'd been there a long time knowing the people really well, and I was falling in love with them. I began a huge prayer ministry to the people in my church. And they started turning these prayer requests, and my wife is here to bear witness to the truth of this. I would go home on Mondays with a stack of prayer cards so thick I could barely get it between my fingers. I'd hold it, they'd be this tall. And I would try to call about 10 of them a week and tell them I was praying for them. And I want you to know, I was a mega church pastor. I've served the Lord my whole life. I prayed for five years through those cards. And almost nothing ever happened. Nobody got miraculously healed of cancer that I know of. Nobody's financial lives were saved because of my prayers. You do that for five years as a pastor and you begin to ask yourself the question, had I believed that God answered my prayer only when he said yes? I would have quit a long time ago. I would have given up. But somehow I understood that the point was the praying. The point was to change me, not him. The point was to come into his presence because he loved me. In the 1800s, in the United States of America, there was a pastor named Henry Ward Beecher. Now, his last years had scandal in them, and it's a terrible, tragic ending to the story. But in his heyday, your native son, Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, said that Henry Ward Beecher was the most important man in America. In fact, the newest biography of Beecher is named that, the most important man in America. 
Abraham Lincoln, uh, his Cooper speech, the Cooper Address, that's the most important speech he ever made that brought him national notoriety and allowed him to go on to become president. The Cooper speech was supposed to be done in Beecher's church, but the church wasn't big enough, and at the last minute they switched it to the Cooper Auditorium, and that's why it's called the Cooper speech. But he was coming to Henry Ward Beecher's church in New York. Henry Ward Beecher is the one who would, who would bring slaves up on the platform during the worship service, and they would auction them off, and the buyer would buy the freedom of the slave. That went all over the South. Well, Lincoln loved this man. Respect, like I said, he said he was the most important man in America. Henry Ward Beecher said something that had helped me through the years. Henry Ward Beecher said that what most made him love God was that the ultimate God of the universe wanted sinners to come talk to him. That saved me. That saved me. What most made me love God was that the ultimate God of the universe wants sinners to come talk to him. As long as you live, remember God wants you to pray. God wants you to talk to him. He'll answer every prayer, yes, wait, or no. If you never get another request granted as long as you live, you keep coming to him because the act of prayer itself is a marvel. It's this great miracle you get to come into his presence. We cannot increase God's strength. We can't even really ultimately change him at the bottom line. I, I think you know what I mean by that. However, you can increase God's happiness. It is the one thing of God in your hand. Remember, Jesus with his nose on the ground, praying the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed, and the answer was no. Don't ever forget it. And there was a precious moment between a young man begging his dad and the two of them interacting. Pray without ceasing. That's all for this morning. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Would you please put all your notes away and would you now just uh, close your eyes and would you bow your heads and would you pray? Would you pray? Now, Father, please, in this message, in the music, in the sermon, somehow today, would you please take thoughts that apply to different people. Sweet Holy Spirit, would you press this deep into them? Father, I know my weakness. I can speak to their ears. But sweet Holy Spirit, only you can take the message from their ears to their hearts. Sink it in deep, please, I pray. Father, thank you for letting us come before you. Thank you for letting us talk to you. Sweet son, thank you for your example in the garden. 
Thank you for letting Peter, James, and John hear you agonizing and be able to write about it later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you. Thank you for letting us be part of the holy dance. To live in your presence, to enjoy you, to know you. I pray that everyone here will leave this place closer to you than they've ever been before. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.